Listeners, I recorded this episode with Sam Worthington before the world was turned upside down by the COVID-19 pandemic. So you won't hear us talking about COVID, but you will hear us discussing issues that are central to human development and that will remain central to human development once the world has passed through this pandemic. Enjoy this episode. A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. It seems that human development challenges are growing more complex with every passing day. And with more complexity, there seems to be an increasing need for finding new ways of working together through partnerships and alliances and coalitions in order to share best practices, to find efficiencies, to learn what didn't work, to improve our standards, and in general, to make progress towards achieving solutions to the challenges we're facing. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360, and this is a Deeper Look podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I'm very pleased to have Sam Worthington, the CEO of Interaction, the largest U.S. alliance of international nonprofit development organizations, as my guest today. Sam is not only the CEO of Interaction, where he's been for over 10 years. Prior to that, he was the CEO of Plan USA, one of the important international development organizations in the U.S. doing work across the world. So he has a deep understanding of the importance of coalitions and partnerships and a very long history in doing development work. Last fall in a Deeper Look episode on protecting against sexual exploitation and abuse, we talked about Interaction CEO Pledge just one example of the influence that Sam and Interaction have had on our community. Sam, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, the theme of this year's Deeper Look podcast is the shape of things to come. So we're looking at the future. I'm asking my guests to look into the 2020s and to share with our listeners what you see as the major trends that will be shaping human development work in the next 10 years? So a few trends. Fragile states have become the epicenter of uh, where we see extreme poverty in the world. It's a combination of poor governance, uh, conflict, and others that have uh, both displaced people and for people within countries stopped the advances that we've seen under the Sustainable Development Goals. In many ways, this fragility is the Achilles heel of the Sustainable Development Goals. Can you say a little bit more about why you see the prominence of fragile states as the Achilles heel in the SDGs? If we look at the world across two generations, we have seen massive improvements in human well-being across a whole range of different indicators from uh, decreases in child mortality, increases in life expectancy, number of girls in schools, uh, decrease in the number of people who are extremely poor, and so forth. All of these changes and betterments of the human condition 
have occurred in contexts where there is some degree of positive state governance occurring, where there is some relationship between community, uh, the state, and markets that is functioning uh, and enables interventions to make a difference in people's lives. The problem with conflict is that conflict both removes the ability of communities to be stable, it results in backwards trends. We see, for example, Syria moving from a middle-income country to the locus of much of the displacement of the world. And it can, uh, in essence, destroy the well-being of a particular people. We are seeing this, for example, in Venezuela with that shift. And if you have long-term protracted conflict, as we see in the DRC or other countries, the ability to make development advances that are sustainable is often pushed. And these fragile places of governance, whether it's from the DRC to Haiti or others, progress can be made at the community level, but they are often not sustained at the national level. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the SDGs didn't take account of that or didn't place enough emphasis on that? I mean, the SDGs address it through there's, yes, there's a focus on civil society and governance and the need for governance and the need for peace. But it's the one place where all the complexities hitting the SDGs come together, where you don't have the peace that you need, where you don't have the type of governance you need, where you don't have the local institution building that you need. And all of these need to happen in an environment where violence might set you back. So I think it was acknowledged that was there, but it was in many ways, I think, politically too tricky to actually have an SAG focused on people in a complex emergency. I think that's an important observation. And I also just wonder if back in 2012, 2013, 2014, when the international community was developing the SDGs, the preeminence of fragility may not have been as recognized or as obvious as it is now. Well, I mean, the humanitarian community sort of was already approaching 60 million displaced, and now we're well over 70 million displaced, and the numbers should be in the hundreds of millions of people impacted by climate. So there was, but it was sort of the division of the humanitarians, you take of that care of that problem over here. But as these conflicts spread, we ended up with situations where the broader development enterprise was being impacted because the, the success under the Millennium Development Goals was largely in areas that were more stable, right. more capacity. So you saw the momentum. And so we ended up facing the toughest areas left and interestingly, when we designed the SDGs, they were designed by people, by nation states, and the poorest, most vulnerable, most fragile contexts did not frame that conversation. It was largely framed by those who were showing progress and knew that they could make progress against the set of goals. Yeah, those are really useful observations. Okay, fragile states. That's one of the trends that you see that shaping the next 10 years. So then going to the rise of nationalism and a sort of an inward looking mindset, the idea that you need to protect yourself with borders uh, or that the other outside you is a threat to you and so forth. And what this is doing is both a reduction in a focus on extreme poverty, uh, willingness to fund official development assistance or even private giving outside your borders. And it's also creating barriers for forcibly displaced people that we were just talking about. And this model, and whether it's the, the border between Turkey right now out of, out of Syria or about Cox Bazaar and the border with uh, Myanmar, Bangladesh, this idea that you need to insulate yourself from the world's problems has in many ways been unfortunately modeled in a negative way by Europe and the United States 
uh, and this trend of looking and taking care of your own is a problem. Right. So the rise of nationalism and populism. And then the one that's having the, probably the biggest impact long term is the impact of climate change and what the climate is doing to poverty around the world and to the advances we've made. And climate, uh, unfortunately, hits those with the least resources, whether you're in the Sahel uh, or uh, low-lying cities and so forth. But I think climate and the impact of climate on human both displacement, the ability to thrive, uh, the ability to have access to water uh, will be uh, an incredibly uh, powerful and albeit rather negative trend facing us. Right. And it's interesting how these three trends that you've identified interact with each other. So many of the fragile states are places that are being affected disproportionately by climate change. So think of the Sahel right, right. now. It's almost like they're being visited by biblical plagues at this time. I read about the locust infestations in uh, Kenya and Somalia and the, in, in East Africa. So climate change is exacerbating state fragility. That exacerbates migration and the displacement of people which has been fueling the rise of nationalism. So you see this kind of almost circular interaction of these factors with each other. So if these are three trends that are going to shape the types of challenges that the world confronts in the 2020s, what are the kinds of responses that you see emerging? So one of them, and this is a, another trend out there, I mean, you know, the, the word we use is localization and has both a positive aspect to it and a, a negative aspect. The positive one is that there is increased local capacity, whether through governance, through institutions, through knowledge uh, and so forth in populations, often in the most complex environments around the world to respond to the problem. So the development enterprise over the past several generations has worked in the sense of building the ability of local people to take care of their own. The limitations of localization, it could be used for a logic of, you know, is our country first? Is our place first? And it impedes the ability of knowledge to flow across borders or interventions to occur at a global scale. And I think one of the tensions we see in the development community is the relationship between this local capacity and the knowledge that it occurs uh, from uh, engaging in development or other interventions around the world. Yes. I look forward to a world where this localization is different so that in the south side of Chicago, BRAC is helping with poverty programs. So it does not have to be the north helping the south, but we need a world where there is a flow of information from different countries. And I'd argue our job is not to put ourselves out of business, it's rather to strengthen the capacity of local actors and ensure this flow of knowledge across different countries. Right, and then to partner wherever the challenges arise so that you have an ecosystem where there are professionals who come from all over the world who can apply their knowledge and experience to solving the challenges. I, I think that's also a very useful observation. And I think one of the, the realities is that international development enterprise has built a global infrastructure that enables individuals to help each other across borders or to transfer knowledge, technology, 
uh, approaches and so forth. And the learnings are flowing around the world. So the solution to the challenges we face as humanity, particularly around the most poor and the most vulnerable, will be found, yes, in local capacity and knowledge, but only if it is linked to this global enterprise of trying to improve the human condition. Yeah, I think that is a very important observation and one that often gets lost in the conversation about localization. So I agree completely that if you compare today to 40 years ago when I started working in Africa, the strength of institutions, the number of people who have deep experience and expertise and knowledge in all sectors, there's just no comparison. And you now have local institutions of higher education and local institutions of vocational education churning out graduates who are qualified people. The capacity is there, but this additional point that you mentioned that as capacity has grown and people have wanted to assert their their right to apply their own expertise, to draw on their own resources, to use their own local knowledge, that that has also created this dynamic which impedes the transfer of knowledge, which throws up constraints to seeking experience and knowledge and expertise wherever wherever it comes from. Business and the private sector has gone global. The nation state serves an enormous purpose in terms of the well-being of its own people. But if you look at the well-being of individuals in this century where we are now, a lot of it is tied to a global economy, is tied to global knowledge, is tied to sharing across cultures and nations, and the development enterprise itself or even particularly the humanitarian enterprise of helping the most vulnerable is only possible if we take advantage of all the skills that exist around the world, particularly if we are to take on these major challenges that I've identified. Yes, if you think of the development enterprise and you compare it to the commercial enterprise. In the commercial enterprise, my sense is there's much less sensitivity about the transfer of knowledge and expertise and experience. In fact, nations and competitor companies, they seek that. They seek to find out what the competitive advantage of another organization is and then to replicate it. Whereas in the development enterprise, because it is so bound by the national politics and, and also the geopolitical politics of the world economic order. You see this sensitivity about wanting to only source solutions or only source expertise or other resources locally. And you get to the issue here of the relationship in the case of civil society with sort of global capitalism. And if we are to shape a uh, global markets and, and capitalism as it affects local populations in a way that brings a compassionate dimension, in a way that brings in social public goods that enable the well-being of large numbers of people, that will only happen if there's an interface between a sort of globalized development enterprise, a globalized civil society, and the global nature of the private sector that's evolved around the world, and then the complexity of bringing in governments and so forth. It's understandable that governments push back. They say this is our area, our place, but in many ways, uh, since our purpose is the well-being of humans anywhere, 
uh, not just a favored elite uh, or a particular uh, group within a country, that we have a responsibility to partner with local groups outside those potential political boundaries. Right. And the evidence also supports that is the most effective way to increase well-being. Because if you look at the countries that have progressed in terms of increasing living standards, improving living standards, meeting the Millennium Development Goals, those are countries that are open to international exchange. They haven't sacrificed their sovereignty, but they have reached out and they have secured or tapped resources and expertise from a global ecosystem instead of just a national one. And a a good example of this would be the focus of development on women and the role of women in societies, both as a part of the economics, uh, but also the social and political uh, dimension of women. And we know that an overlay of gender and a focus on women within development has a much greater positive long-term impact. And there are values that come with that push from the development community, but there's also enormous data that validates that this is the best way if you want to improve the well-being of all peoples across genders or groups, that one must be inclusive of who's involved in improving their own well-being. Right, that it's a prerequisite, that you're not actually going to achieve the objectives of higher living standards and more prosperity unless you include the entire population. I would add that both as one of the trends that will shape how we approach human development challenges in the future and one of the responses to see more inclusive approaches that prioritize the status and equality of women. What other responses do you see that international development organizations and governments will be taking to respond to these factors shaping the future? I I believe one of the best inventions of the 20th century, and it had been around before that, was the role of civil society and the concept that an individual or a group of individuals can have a say over their own future. And that concept has spread all over the world, not through a government institution or a business and so forth, but simply because a community wants to see a better future for itself, a group of students, a group of entrepreneurs, individuals, a group of women have wanted to have a greater say over their future. And that willingness of civil society uh, to play a role in the betterment of the human condition and the recognition in the Sustainable Development Goals and by governments of the critical and central role of civil society is one of the key tools that I believe will make for a more inclusive form of development going forward. It doesn't mean that you can't have a government or an economic engine that is is creating the benefits of individuals in a society, let's say China. But if you want all parts of a society to benefit or begin to benefit over time, then you must provide those parts and enable those parts of a society to have a voice and say over their future. So I agree with you that if you look at the period, say from 1980 to 2010, that was a period of flourishing of civil society. And I think of my work in Africa 
when I first started working in Swaziland in 1980, there were very few civil society organizations. It was a new kind of concept that was being introduced. Now, civil society organizations are deeply rooted in the society. They're accepted as, well, as a normal part of society, and they play a very important role. And that same evolution has occurred in many, many countries across the world. But it feels like there's some backlash against that right now. Do you see that? No, there's very much a, a, a national backlash against civil society, and there's a very much a, a backlash over its power and influence. And in many ways, this reflects its strength, because the, the rise of civil society was not just local institutions. It was creation of national platforms like interaction in some 80 countries around the world. And those national platforms all talking with each other and influencing a G20 or the shaping of the sustainable development goals or any large scale foreign policy in a democracy is now influenced by these civil society actors at multiple levels. And you could see the pushback because why do we want to provide people a voice if development is about the well-being of an elite or national growth and so forth and not a broadly inclusive one, uh, it is easier to push civil society to the side. And we are seeing a pretty strong global backlash. But the strength here of civil society is that it has no center. There is no head of the snake to take off. Mm -hmm. uh, it simply grows in different places. It is networked globally through the web. It is sort of the autocrat's worst nightmare. And over time, this wrestling of what type of society we are creating in many ways will unfold. And right now, we are unfortunately in an era where it's heading in the wrong direction. Well, I read a recent analysis that suggested that the kind of vision of civil society that you just articulated is a more of a Western concept and that it's built into uh, many of the international development structures like into the World Bank, the multilateral development institutions, the UN institutions, which require consultation with civil society, which prioritize and include civil society stakeholders when they're developing their plans of work. But that with the rise of a new set of actors that are financing development activities, China, India, Brazil, and, and others, there's a new orientation that is now coming in. And at the same time these new actors are rising, Europe and the U.S. are receding. The Bretton Woods institutions look weaker than they have in the past. And that the rise of the new institutions, they don't require consultation with civil society. They don't prioritize or even recognize the role of civil society. I mean, there's a clear rebalance of global powers between uh, the West, China, and other actors, and we're moving into an era of multiple nationally interested states uh, looking out for their interests. That rebalancing has tipped the conversation away from the West in many ways. But the concept of civil society is no longer a Western concept. I've spent the last seven or eight years, whether it's been on uh, the board of Civicus or Forest, these are 
global entities uh, spanning 70 or 80 countries, largely dominated by the global south, with tens of thousands of local institutions that are civil society institutions. Mm -hmm. They are not dependent on the West for their existence. They come out of their societies. They're not even tied to particular development projects. But that movement is not going to go away because of the rebalancing of the nation-state power dynamics. It is coming outside of the Westphalian order in some ways and is rooted in a belief of individuals in all societies of some form of self-determination. Now, let's not overstate this. Clearly, this is limited by power dynamics within a country. The legal and regulatory environment closing civil society has gone up significantly, and there is an ability to close and shut down civic groups around the world. But I do see this ability of individuals to have a say over their development enterprise, no matter where they live, that they can have some say over their future. And that belief of wanting some say over your future is not going to go away. It is as powerful and preeminent in the human condition as our desire to create markets. That's a great observation. And it takes me immediately back to our conversation about displaced people and the fact that they're in these constrained environments, that they're in a capped environment, I think is how you put it, but that they're hope to be able to shape their own futures is not something that can be extinguished. It's part of the human condition. I think that taking that uh, insight and thinking how do we use that as a design principle or an operating principle can be very instructive to us as we think about the challenges in the future and how to address them. So in thinking about the, the future, you're the head of Interaction. Uh, Interaction is an association of hundreds of civil society organizations. What do you think the future is going to look like for civil society organizations, for international NGOs or for local NGOs? What kind of adaptations do you see your members making in order to respond to these trends that we've been talking about? Patrick, you put your finger on because the key word here is adaptation, and it's a recognition that who you are today is not what you're going to be if you are to be relevant tomorrow. It's about different structures. It's about blending for-profit and non-profit modes of operating. It's about diversified funding. It's about being global and local at the same time. And it's responding to massive trends. And I'll give an example. So if you take climate, and if we do the overlay of climate change on the people-centered activities of the development enterprise, how are we supposed to change? Or how do we adapt to be climate-friendly or carbon-neutral? What is the change in the types of programs that we do? How do we change our advocacy? Because it's not just the environmental groups whose voice need to be heard around this. And ultimately, if we know that this challenge of climate is going to be one of the biggest existential problems for human beings, can we change our approaches, our institutions, our ways of working, our values, our missions in such a way that we could actually try to make a difference in combating it? The last question I'd like to ask you is you've talked about some of the big factors you see shaping the next 10 years, the fragility of states, 
climate change, the rise of nationalism, the role of women, all which interact with each other. You've talked about some of the responses, localization is one, civil society, and then this beautiful concept about people's aspiration to shape their, their future. As you look at the 2020s, do you look at the challenges ahead and our ability to confront and overcome those challenges with a sense of optimism or with a sense of pessimism? The danger of being someone in my 60s and you sort of present me with that glass of water that's <laughs> half full is I'm still the sort of naive person goes, how can you add a drop? How can you fill it further? Yes, there are trends that push against us. But even if you go into the most complex environments, and whether it's war zones or refugee camps or very difficult or the height of the AIDS pandemic around the world, even in those circumstances, you will always find human beings who are at their best, individuals who are trying to change the uh, situation that they are in, and individuals who are acting to improve the human condition and succeed in doing so. And part of our challenge is a decision on what do we focus on? Do we focus on what is breaking things or do we focus on the building? And that focus on the hope of building something and perhaps it's a naive hope, but to me, that's what makes me do what I do. Sam Worthington, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Listeners, thank you for tuning in for this fascinating conversation with Sam Worthington, CEO of Interaction. We'd love to hear what you think about the trends that are going to shape the future and the way the international community or your own organization is going to respond to those factors in the years ahead. Share your comments. Share this episode with your colleagues and others in the development community. And tune in next month for another Deeper Look. Thank you.